Okay, everyone, welcome to another ARCS chat. My name is Robin Bauer Kilgo. I am the Association Manager for ARCS. I have a couple of quick announcements and I'm going to throw it over to the rest of the ARCS chat team. Um, just so everyone knows, this is streaming live on YouTube. So between Zoom and YouTube, there is a little bit of a delay. So just be aware of that. If you'd like to participate in the chat, which we are more than happy to have you do, you will need to sign in with your Google or YouTube account. This is part of the system. So feel free to do that if you want to participate. It's always good to say everyone say hello, where they're from. Um, you can tell us how many COVID shots you've gotten so far this year. That seems to be a huge topic of discussion lately. So feel free to put that in there as well. And a couple quick programming notes. Um, if you missed our all members meeting that happened a couple weeks ago, it's actually over on the ARCS uh, website, arcsinfo.org. There you can kind of see what all the committees have been working on, what are some plans for the future. You can see some of our sponsors and other people saying hello. So feel free to go take a look at that recording. Um, we're going to have a bunch of meetups happening pretty soon, all via, of course, this fash, you know, fabulous virtual landscape we all have now. But if you have certain areas that you're specializing in, like contract registrars or anything else, I would urge you to go check out our website. Um, they're going to be scheduled within the next month or so. It's going to be on a bunch of different areas because the meetups team has really decided to kind of get going with the meetups programming, which we're excited about. So we can say hello to people. So keep an eye on that. And then finally, um, ARCS is planning a series of workshops starting on May 6th, going through June 17th. It's a series of three workshops or webinars all about leadership. So if you're interested in that, I would encourage you to go take a look at the website again. Um, we just did a save the date for it, May 6th through June 17th through our weekly news or bi-weekly newsletter rather. But more excitingly, it'll be open for registration probably within the next week or so. So keep an eye on that. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and hand the mic over to John Robinette, one of our hosts. Hey, welcome back for another ARCS chat. Uh, with us as always is Amanda Robinson. Hey guys, Amanda here coming to you from sunny Florida at the Museum of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg. And uh, we also have our special guest, Patty Johnson. Uh, Patty is an online pioneer who has more than 15 years experience writing about art, editing artists' writing, and writing grants. She is the founder of Workshop, an online platform designed to help artists and art and art world professionals online and off. Prior to this, she founded the, the, the blog Art F City and has written for publications like CNN, The New York Times, and New York Magazine. She's made a career out of working with institutions and individuals by helping them produce their best work. So, uh, yes, um, what we are going to be doing today is walking through uh, several of the key uh, news items in order to sort of deconstruct what's actually behind them and get a little bit more perspective on uh, what's happening and how they might play out. Um, and uh, before we do that, I do want to wish everybody, you know, uh, safe, safety and, and health. Uh, you know, we're still, you know, going through a, a difficult time and it's been really a year that uh, that we've been going through this. And, you know, uh, in April of last year, we started having sort of um, real, you know, dedicated, you know, industry talk about, uh, you know, how COVID and coronavirus is affecting our, our field. And so, uh, you're just kind of marking time, uh, you know, now that we're a year on. So, um, with that, you know, we're, we're still dealing with how the industry is affected by it. And so one of the key, uh, components that has come out of it is deaccessioning and that's really you know as collections care people and as people just interested in museums and art and artifacts we are all sort of wrestling with this this problem so 
um, <clears throat> you know, and it just keeps coming up. So, you know, we want to we want to discuss deaccessioning, and uh, with deaccessioning, it's really a discussion about museum funding, uh, or at least it's turned into that discussion. And um, I want to I want to ask Patty, you know, how, what's your take on on what's happening here, and what's um, how do you expect uh, the the topic to develop? Well, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank everyone here for having me on the uh, on this panel and for this talk. It's really exciting to be here. Um, and before I get started, I just wanted to let you all know what my vaccine situation is, um, since that seems to be the requirement, um, which is I am about to get mine. I'm scheduled for next week, but I did go uh, go in um, yesterday for one. Um, was not able to get it due to a computer glitch. So that so now that we're all squared away here, <laughs> I feel like we can really dive into this subject of deaccessioning. Now, deaccession the virus. Yeah. <laughs> An urgent matter for sure. Yes. Um, now I think like. To my mind, I think a lot of these problems uh, related to deaccessioning, if we take maybe a wider angle lens to this, is rather than sort of getting into the minutia of how much money um, and each acquisition is going to bring in and, and who has it and who doesn't, which I think actually we should get into at some point. But the broader lens here um, is what do people need? And if we can ask that about the public, if we can ask that about the museum staff, and we can ask that about as broad a swath of people as possible and start getting answers to that, then I think we can um, sort of handle the question, not just of the accessioning, but also um, a lot of the kind of um, social issues that tend to dovetail with a lot of these conversations, right? So um, we've had a lot of conversations um, about the value of labor um, and um, how we value uh, the labor of arts workers, how we value the labor of um, the say just custodial staff and security guards at museums, how we um, value, um, I think that, that that's probably like the list there that I have off the top of my head, but like that, those types of um, labor, I think traditionally are um, just really underfunded in the art and that in the art world and that is systemic. And so if we start from the question of, well, we have this systemic inequity, um, what are the things that we can do um, to uh, try and address that? And I think the first thing is how can we pay for labor? Then we can start to address like, well, what can we do? to to um to achieve that um so that would be my sort of overall starting point for the conversation 
Right. And that, that's a super important point. And I know, Man- Amanda, you had something to add because, uh, you know, obviously we're, we're having this discussion largely as a result of the AAMD resolution that came out uh, last year around this time that uh, loosened their own institutional restrictions on the topic. But, uh, but you have some thoughts. It's not really that simple, is it? Yeah, well, as <laughs> no one else was privy to this, but I kind of w- went off a little bit with my frustration earlier um, and how deaccessioning has been portrayed in the media, particularly over the past year s- since AMD has come out with their resolution. Um, and the truth of the matter is, is that if you look into the revised guidelines from the resolution, they're not really very um, broad and they're still pretty restrictive. And unless you are out there deaccessioning items that are earning you millions of dollars, the revenue that you can use to go towards your operating costs is very limited. So arguably only the institutions, and I don't mean to offend anyone, this is just my perspective, arguably the institutions that will benefit from that are the ones that have multi-million dollar valuable objects in their collection. Oftentimes that's mostly limited to an art collection. Um, and if they can spare, you know, a piece worth that much money uh, as part of their deaccessioning process, you know, are, do they really need the financial help that bad? You know, we're looking at very few places in the United States that would benefit from that. Um, and it doesn't really help out the everyman. And, you know, when you come to deaccessioning, it's not like you're going in the storage unit and you're like, okay, well, that can go, that can go, that can go. You deaccession things in a very specific way. And that hasn't changed. The resolution didn't change that. So anything you might be selling from your collection is likely something that's not museum quality. It's damaged. Um, it doesn't speak to your collecting plan or to the mission of your museum. So it's like a very narrow focused amount of what you could possibly dispose of um, ethically and then you know sell or deaccession ethically and dispose of. And disposing is of course one option is to sell it at auction. Um, and then what would the revenue be that you'd earn from that? And then who could possibly, you know, use the, the interest off of those earnings to pay for your, your utility bill to run an right. entire building. So those are the things that I find that aren't really portrayed very accurately. It's quite frustrating and um, it's not a, a, you know, a dig at our field per se. It's just a dig at the way it's portrayed. And I don't think it's quite fair. It's quite polarizing. Well, I mean, I think this does get to some of the issues that happen with, uh, like, that just happen with media coverage at, um, in general. Um, there are blind spots uh, for sure, um, and there's also the issue that, like, uh, media coverage is not really any different than um, any other part of the, uh, like larger economy in the sense that we have um, things that get more attention and things that don't get a lot of attention. And the, the things that get a lot of attention tend to have a lot of money attached to them and the things that don't, you know, and are in need of more care. Um, obviously, those are the things that don't get a lot of attention. Now, structurally, uh, the media is sort of, um, and I use that term, uh, in a way right now that I don't actually like because I think the media is not like one giant monolith. We're all people, right? And that, I think if there's, you know, we're like 10 minutes in and I'm like, I've got a theme and it's people. Um, <laughs> but but if we like, you know, um, if we're to talk about like the things that make stories, 
um, and things that people want to read. Like nobody cares about a, a painting that has like a few chips out of it that is going to be the accession. It's boring news. Now, I didn't make it that way. That's just the way it is. Um, but the things that are going to get me attention are like the giant Warhol that the Baltimore Museum wants to sell off because that um, is signed. It's, it's like it's big, it's glistening. It, it has all these like weighty elements, but it does have a cost, right? Like, and that cost is larger than the cost of the painting. That cost comes at the price of all the coverage that can't be um, that that can't be produced because this one thing gets consumed. Right. And, you know, and the question I have is like, say a situation like Baltimore, um, who has for a long time been selling parts of its collection in order to do quote unquote progressive deaccessioning um, in order to fund the purchase of artists that m better represent the diversity of the city. Would, would, would their situation that they faced last fall have, has, have even arisen if it weren't for the, 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 the virus and the, and the shutdowns and the, the financial losses? And, and then as a result, the, the, the resolution, which opened this door, um, and many people believe that, you know, it's not really going to go back to the way it was. I mean, obviously, people have been deaccessioning forever. It's a part of healthy collecting. Um, so, like you know, were they just t trying to take advantage of the moment to, to do more or would people have even cared if it were uh, a non pandemic year? I mean, this is my own personal opinion based on, you know, um, not a hell of a lot in terms of like, I didn't, I didn't speak to all the people involved, but right. like knowing Katie Siegel who has been invested in this and like who I have, um, you know, shared panels with and all the rest. Like, I cannot imagine that this was something that was just a tossed off idea to make money. It's just not yeah. how she operates. Yeah. Right. And that's where I think like some of these things get lost in the, um, in the coverage. Like if you look at the people involved, that often tells you like what, um, like, like what's going on. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, and I personally, this is a somewhat contentious uh, position I recognize, but like, I, I'm all in favor for that Warhol going somewhere else. Like the Warhols are like at every single museum and it's frankly oppressive. Like I find, like, I, I'm like, whenever I go to Europe, I'm like, oh, I don't have to look at a Warhol yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. everywhere here. Yeah. You know, so like the idea that we could reimagine a museum without a ginormous um, painting. I mean, I get that that one is very, very significant, but like the idea that we could reimagine what a like museum might look like minus a Warhol, to me, that's just like it's brave and exciting. Right. I would not say that about other museums, you know, but that one for sure. I have two points I want to touch back on based on what you both had said. And the first is, you know, this resolution that AMD came out with um, is specifically related to now allowing institutions to use funds for direct care. 
previously, if you were an art institution and you deaccessioned something and disposed of it, you could only use that money to buy something new for your collection. And I find it really hypocritical because a lot of institutions have been employing direct care for quite some time in their collection practices. And um, art-based museums who do use funds from their deaccessions to maybe pay staff who specifically deal with cleaning out their collection, or maybe they use it to purchase frames when they acquire something new. Like it's not so tightly held. And so now to come out and say, oh, we're gonna lighten the strings a little and we're not gonna punish anyone for two years. It's like, who have you been punishing since before then? It's, I find that quite hypocritical. Um, and that's not to say that like the approach that Baltimore took, just like you said, Patty, I have no idea what the conversations were at that institution, the practices they went through, as an accredited organization, I'm assuming that they did everything that was proper to deaccession those pieces and bring them up for auction. Um, the only thing I get worried about when you bring something, especially a, a blue chip artist like Warhol to an auction, is that that's never going to go back in the public hands, even if we're oversaturated with, with Warhol, um, surely, in the American museum collection world it's very unlikely that another institution could ever afford to purchase a piece like that at auction. It's a rare instance. So that's always a little disheartening because when you know you're gonna dispose of something and your option is to bring it to auction, which is usually the best case scenario for any institution, right? Um, it's very unlikely it's gonna go back into the public and that should always be the first effort. We should always try and put it back in another public institution or keep it in the public realm because that's where it was and that should always be the goal. And that's a big reason why museums don't de do not deaccession and then like, oh, we're just gonna give it back to the donor. You know, it was theirs, it was whatever because it sets a really poor precedent. Yeah. And then you're bringing it back out and your goal should always be able to keep it out there in the public. Those are just some thoughts. Yep. Yeah, no, I agree with that too. Um, you know, in this particular instance, I was not, um, you know, attached to that, uh, that particular piece, but generally I, I am in agreement. Yeah, and but now you know we've got Brooklyn Museum who unloaded a couple. Uh, now the Mets talking about it. Um, you know these are not small institutions, and you know there there are others that are you know much smaller that are going about it, um, and uh, so it it really has you know set off a, a real effect. And you know honestly, you know the AAM uh, guidelines about it are, are pretty clear, um, and. You know, all of these resolutions, whether it's AAMD or AAM, they're there for these these instances, right? So, I mean, the people who are fervently in favor of or fervently against deaccessioning for, you know, for the financial benefit as opposed to collection building, you know, make this point over and over again that the ethics involved are specifically to avoid the conflict in these situations. Right. And, and it's like, here we are, you know, the moment, you know, the reality hits and, you know, everyone realizes that we're losing, you know, millions of dollars that, uh, you know, you start wanting to sell things off, but, um, there is another component to the deaccessioning and you sort of alluded to it, uh, before uh, Patty, it's, it's the social justice element that's sort of attached to it, whether it's, um, you know, reducing staff or uh, dealing with staff who want to organize and um, for labor reasons. Uh, and then, of course, you know, there's a tie in uh, to, you know, who our institutions represent. And, you know, of course, the 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 racial and ethnic disparities have been highlighted over the last year, uh, you know, from George Floyd's death and then the economic inequality that came with it, everything. So, I mean, how do you see um, 
deaccessioning tying in to the well let's start first with labor um because we've seen so many people uh unionizing in museums especially um i mean is is do you see those two uh factors as being connected i mean unionization has been going on prior to the pandemic too but well i would argue everything is connected in in a, in a sort of larger yeah. sense um but i do think that uh the the issue of labor um is really connected to deaccessioning because um you know we live in a country that does not fund the arts properly i think if we were in a in a different place where the government spent more money um, on the institutions designed to preserve culture and protect it and did not leave that to billionaires who do not have an implicit interest in the public. They have, um, which is not to say that billionaires are bad people de facto, like they just have, they, they don't have the same concerns. You know, it is not sexy to pay for arts workers. It is sexy to name your, put your name over a wig, you know, like that, those are the types of things that um, a billionaire is going to privilege, at least what, as we've seen, you know, that tends to be how they spend their money. So when we come up with, issues that are directly related to the pandemic, you know, and there are museums that are legitimately suffering. Um, you know, one thing I would have really liked to have seen, although I think it was sort of wishful thinking, was some real leadership amongst some of these, the wealthier museums, which would have meant, in, in my opinion, paying um, for the labor that, that was lost, you know, like they didn't, like those are the things that I think are, are coming up. Like the, the labor, I'm glad that there is unionizing efforts. Um, you know, they, this sort of specifically dovetailed um, with the new museum last year when they held, held that Hans Hacke exhibition, which was, um, you know, heavily invested in, uh, a lot of that work critiquing um, underpaid uh, arts labor and uh, all the rest. And the, at the same time, the museum is like engaging in union busting, right? Mm -hmm. So we have all of these things sort of playing at the, at the same time. And I think the artists um, have really traditionally and, and still, still do like the living artists um, tend to represent um, more progressive values than the museums that uh, show their work um, and employ arts workers. Yeah. No, and we've seen this time and time and again, I think. Um, oh, and, and just as a, as a, as a general point, um, we, you know, we, in order to, uh, for, for today's, uh, show, we, we did aggregate a lot of these, uh, articles from the, from the news. And so, uh, I'll, I'll make those available after the fact. And, and one of the articles that, uh, 
that uh, that Patty contributed was this N plus one article that that touched on a lot of the institutions, and I thought it was a really good who who had this contradiction between uh, institutional positions on things, union busting, for example, things uh, values that seem to be held by the upper administration or the board that differed wildly from museum staff or the the general museum staff or um, or how the museum wished to be portrayed. And so it's a real contradiction that we, that we see quite a lot of. Um, and I, I wonder how much of, you know, it was like five minutes after, you know, lockdown started, museums started laying off people and furloughing people. And my question was always, are they hurting that badly that they couldn't ride it out for a couple of months? Because none of us knew how long it was going to last. Right. But immediately everybody was 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 let go and furloughed, and and it just really pointed to the fact that there is a funding problem here, um, and you know, and we're so dependent on on private donors. Now I, I I understand from my European colleagues that you know it's much better there, but it's not a hundred percent resolved and I, I they can't you know support everyone forever so if you're if you're listening and you're from europe you know let us know in the chat how things are going there um and speaking of the chat robin is there anything happening in the chat that we should know about any good questions or comments so, so far it's pretty quiet so all we'll right. just keep waiting for people to chime in when they're ready all right sounds good um amanda any thoughts about this uh you're in a state that's not so union friendly <laughs> Yeah, I think back to the conversation I think we had about a year ago <laughs> Yeah, when we started talking about unionization. And in Florida, there's just, I mean, there's some unions, there's a lot of education, like educator unions and what have you in Florida, but it's not like in the Northeast Yeah, where I think you see a bigger, you see a more common footprint of it for various industries or various trades. So it doesn't really seem to exist in a full force down here, which is a real shame. Um, but I would also, you know, like the competition for certain jobs down here is very different than it is in the Northeast. Like you probably have a great deal more contract art handlers and preparators and registrars yeah. and, and arguably conservators. We just like, they're just not the same down here yeah. for whatever that's worth. So it's hard to, it's hard to see that forming here. Although I could see it absolutely happening somewhere like the Northeast or even right. in California, possibly. Right. You just have a bigger amount of that stuff. Right. People, that industry. Is there a sense that um, that uh, staff are underpaid, underrepresented, um, not not treated properly? In in Florida. In, in Florida, yeah. Because obviously, you know, like everyone here is, you know, talking about it, and uh, you know, here for me is New York, um, you know, because because there have been so many uh, places like you know the Guggenheim most recently that have gone that route and you know not registrars which is an interesting uh point but it's, mm -hmm. it seems to be art handlers preparators right right and also i would argue one of the most underappreciated positions in the entire at least art museum field is what i can speak to and that's my opinion um it's hard to to say i haven't worked at every institution in florida <laughs> to know um how they're valued i mean I, I certainly keep my eye on the salary surveys that come out every year from aamd and then when you know aam decides to make those available to people without charging them a hundred dollars for it i get to look at those too um and it doesn't really seem like the the salary is the salaries are not where i would argue they should be for people who are basically the backbone of an institution right um so that's, yeah. that's my two cents. I think, that, you know, you have a lot of people, especially when you 
look at the art handling world, the preparator world. These are skills that, you know, take time to learn. Uh, you could argue some of them are trades, and I don't say that disparagingly. Um, I think a lot of the individuals I've worked with are craftsmen, and they have a true talent. Um, craftswomen, it's everybody. And, you know, it does. it's not reflected in how they're paid. It's not reflected in how they're treated, and it's certainly not reflected um, – in, in other ways, and that's in general in the museum field, I would say, too, not just, you know, by institution. Yeah. I would just add, too, because I'm in Florida as well. Florida's weird for many different reasons, <laughs> like politically, culturally, everything. We are such a weird combination of we have elements of the Northeast, we have elements of the Midwest, we have elements of traditional South. So trying to even compare salaries between what you see in North Florida to what you see in like Miami to what you see where Amanda works in St. Pete, it's just, it's so weird. And that we it's also like, there. Add into the mix that we have a huge immigrant population from not not specifically Cuba, but a lot of South America as well. I mean, it's a huge present in our presence in our state. Um, it's it's an interesting melting pot. I would argue it's also kind of a good thing too at times. Um, <laughs> but we are a rare bird. <laughs> yeah, not gonna argue that. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, in in a way, a lot of what we're talking about is um, we're talking about equity in, in some respect and, and, uh, and, and about justice. And, you know, it kind of leads into a conversation about uh, the other aspect of, of social justice, which is, um, you know, our, our, our environment, our, you know, context um, just in general in life and, and uh, post George Floyd's death. And obviously we're saying this, we're talking about this um, at the time that the, the, the kill his killer is on trial um but what is what is the role i mean I, this is a kind of a bad question but i'm going to still ask it like what is the role of our institutions and and specifically our collections um in in this new context like how 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 do we i mean you know where arcs for example is in the process of trying to create better engagement by uh you know, by the diversity, you know, the diverse populations of the country, as as opposed to just sort of white, uh, primarily women uh, in the collections care field. So this is this is being reflected in a lot of places and museums are trying to diversify. But like, in what other ways should we be addressing this issue? Do you have any thoughts on, on this, Patty? Well, um, I, I think this is, uh, like anything, a work in progress. I mean, we saw... <clears throat> Um, last year, the Whitney um, uh, launch uh, or abort an attempt to launch a show in the education department that would have been um, filled with um, materials that they had acquired from um, uh, like a lot of the protests. And the complaint there was that the people who had that the works that had been acquired, acquired, like they had not gotten permission from the artist before they made the announcement that this was something that was uh, going to take place. So a lot of, I think, you know, one of the problems that museums also struggle with is that the pace of change is very difficult to keep up with. And we see this in a lot of different places right now where we can, you know, museums are, no offense guys, but you don't move that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> like, but they're 
for that, right? Like institutions are not designed to be these agile, responsive um, organizations. That's the point is that they're, they're stable and they don't change because their job is to preserve culture. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and we see, you know, we look at what happened with, say, the Philip Gustin show. I mean, this is obviously a show that was pl- pr- planned for years, and then um, it it came about right at, at a very contentious time in, in world history because we saw that the Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter protest not only affected the United States, but they were worldwide. And so the that show specifically resonated with a lot of people now, um, or the presence of that show at that time uh clearly you know struck a nerve i mean how do you feel about uh the fact that that was that was canceled oh i'm sorry could you could you repeat the um which show was canceled the, there was the philip gustin track. yeah no <laughs> worries just talking about the philip gustin show that was postponed for a few years yeah i mean that i mean that's like a little bit of a hornet's nest right like that yeah. that um, and I, I don't know that I have a specific stance on that, um, on that, um, cancellation just because, um, there's just like so much back and forth in terms of like what the, um, the curator, the, uh, like the back and forth between the curators and like the decision being made and, um, I don't know, like... I mean, it's a tough one simply because, um, I mean, in some... I mean, I go back and forth on it myself, but, you know, I was thinking... I was reading that that article about it this morning, and I was thinking, wow, you know, this... That, you know, the, the Ku Klux Klan representations in there, um, that that is part of the show, but it's not the entire show. And right. so that... That is, you know, and, and obviously the point's been made, like there were, there was just like a full white curatorial staff working on this. And, you know, I think the, the real critical point was, you know, we can't make these representations with with the, the, the current thinking that went behind it, that went into it. Um, it, it needs to be a more diverse uh, group of people presenting the show. Um, but, you know, the show didn't revolve around those images. That was part of the artist's career. So, I mean, I see it I see it both ways. Um, and, you know, I, I was, you know, I, I'm generally a fan of Kay Feldman at the National Gallery. And so, you know, I, I, I ter- take her opinion, um, you know, with, with uh, very seriously. So, and, and obviously she, she chose to, to push it off. So, um, but, you know, the, the Tate was angry they, that they, they weren't going to get it. So, um you know but uh the context may be different there but um you know man does you look you look like you wanted to say something no well i agree with i i completely agree with both of you especially not having been involved in the project you know it's hard to understand the nuances of conversation that happened and it, one perspective looking at it might seem like well these people are damned if they do damned if they don't they're coming forward and saying you know what we think that we need to broaden our perspective on the show and we need to bring in other voices and that we can't, based on the staff we have here or the people involved, we can't present a full picture the way that we should be doing it. And then like the world gets mad at them for that. Right. Um, but if they were to go forward, like this is something I personally don't really enjoy are all of these, which seem to me, which I, I recognize might be quite 
silly because I'm a, you know, I'm a white woman in the world and uh, these messages are not meant for me, but all of the like organizations coming out and saying, oh, we're so sorry about this. We're so like every instance that happens has happened over the last year. These like they feel like empty messages and it's fine to say that, of course, it should go without question that all of these things that have happened in our country and throughout the world in the past year are, you know, are terrible. But what are you doing about it? You can't just stand there and say it's bad and then like put no action behind those words, which I think is how it feels. And I think that to me, that kind of sounds like what you were saying, Patty, like we're just so slow to react sometimes in the museum field that even though we can put out these words and say these things, like what are we doing to try and change it? And it, like, it's, it's so slow going and we're not seeing the action that we want to, that we're, that it sounds like we're saying we want to see. And so coming out and saying they wanted to pause the show because they felt like more context was needed or more voices would need to be brought in. It's like, well, okay. So here's someone who finally said, recognize that maybe what they were saying might be disingenuous in some way. And they wanted to be better about it. And then we're still mad at them. So that's, that's how, like, that's that back and forth I have in my mind about that. And that's kind of what it spears from. Yeah, no, I think that there, there was a lot of that for me as well. Um, I think just in terms of um, sort of negotiating um, the, just in terms of negotiating, like, what people what people say and what they want to do and also like a certain history with museums where um like there's a i this might be my own stuff but i always feel like museums are assembling like diversity committees and committees designed to like get to the bottom of a problem and like a lot of times these things take many years and the internal politics of the museum prevent any of the recommendations from being um, like from being implemented. So what ends up happening is a little bit of like bucket kicking, you know, so you're just kicking things down the road rather than really being able to address them. And there's like, there's a part of this um, that I think is like, I don't really blame the museum. I don't want to blame the museums entirely for this, uh, for what I think is like often a very good faith effort um, to, to try and address things. But that, um, I guess I've just seen it at a lot of different museums where um, there is no change in the end. And I think, you know, I, one of the weird things actually was that like the Guggenheim had that big shakeup and like Nancy Spector left and um, there was a, a big um, investigation there that basically found that she um, was not responsible for anything, but she got pushed out anyway. Um, and there was a lot, I'm sure there was a ton behind the scenes on that. Yeah. Um, and you know, some of these stories, we just won't know the, the full story. Right, exactly. Well, you know, when it comes to representation, um, you know, we, we, we do recognize that, um, that uh, what we put out in the world, it does matter. And, um, you know, for, for, you know, a lot of white people, we don't, um, we don't think as, 
it doesn't affect us as much and and so whether it's you know say philip gustin representing the Ku Klux Klan or if it's a con confederate monument i mean i went to school in texas and there were you know monuments on campus that were of you know people that were slaveholders but they were you know in, in instrumental in founding the institution and such and you know it was it was contentious even then but I walked by him and I didn't think about it, but for many others, it, it had a significant role. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe one of the things that we should talk about is like, you know, what it matters if the institution is private, public, if it's a, if it's a government institution as well, because, you know, the government's essentially aligning itself with the image that it's putting out. So, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, where, where do you, where do you where do you fall on? I mean, is there another way to look at uh, the Confederate monument situation? I mean, are are, are we just going to start destroying that stuff, or um, what do we keep? <laughs> I mean, and, and honestly, if anyone's out there that that's listening that has any input on this and is dealing with it, I, we we want to hear from you uh, because I'm sure that there are institutions uh, dealing with this sort of thing. I mean, I would be happy to get rid of a lot of that stuff, quite honestly, but yeah. that, um, I mean, that, I mean, can, can we talk about it in the same way that we talk about, say the Philip Gustin show is, is sort of where I'm coming from. Like, because uh, for me, it's a, it's an idea of, of representation. Um, you know what, this is like, this is a corollary thing, So, I'm, but I'm just gonna bring it up because I think it's important when we talk about race and all the rest. So Dred Scott, like last year, um, did this, uh, did the slave uh, rebellion reenactment. I don't know if you all followed that, but that was in New Orleans and it was kind of amazing. This was the largest slave uprising um, in American history. And like all that existed prior to his piece was like a little plaque on this like um, like island. I think there was some like a Costco or some, you know, box like franchise um, like next to it. And there was just this tiny thing. And when you think about that relative to say the, um, like all of the plantations that are uh, like, mini museums now that sort of preserve that history mm -hmm. and like what um, was important for the people, like this slave rebellion that only gets this plaque, like you can kind of see, like there's a difference in the way that we treat some monuments and other monuments and like what becomes a monument and what doesn't. And I think like that, like, Every time we talk about preserving a statue, what doesn't happen is we don't talk about what doesn't get preserved. What we haven't deemed is important. And I think that that unfortunately, like maybe a little bit beyond what a, like, what a registrar can do, but like I do think that that needs to be part of the conversation, right? Like, because we, I mean, we all are used to dealing with the things that are like the actual objects that have already come to us, but it's what's missing that is the cost. Mm -hmm. And those costs are invisible. And we like, as arts workers, we have to find ways to make them visible. Yeah, yeah. And 
uh, I, you know, I, I mean, I think many of us feel that there's a disparity between, you know, what we're feeling, you know, as we work with the, the collections and we feel like what we're seeing on a daily basis and then what gets put out by the museum is often somehow a little bit different. Um, and, um, and so, you know, you, you end up with, you know, the, these sort of disparaging situations, but, uh, um, you know, which is, you know, that people, you know, on the board that, you know, it's sort of the, the, we're talking about the whitewashing of, you know, back, back to money again, you know, we're whitewashing people's reputations by putting their, their name on the wing, but we need the, the museums need the money. Um, and, you know, we saw that, you know, just what happened with Leon Black uh, at, at MoMA, which is a big deal. You know, he stepped down as the president of their board. Uh, and, you know, the, they're, you know, and he's a major, major collector too. So, I mean, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's going to keep going on. So um, I uh, wanted to, any, any good comments from the chat, Robin? I just want to check in there before we, you know, shift gears. No, besides people agreeing with me that Florida's weird. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we have a consensus. <laughs> um, well, I mean, <laughs> say no more. Um, so, um, sh uh, I, all right, I, where do you want, which, which way do we want to go? Benin bronzes or NFTs? I kind of want to go NFTs. Do you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> You have a preference, Patty? Oh, NFTs. Let's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think this is an interesting subject because I think that NFTs and you know blockchain stuff in general is solves a major problem in um, in our work, especially you know in the registrar side of 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 the industry, right? You know, the documentation is critical. And if we can, you know, verify and solidify that it's, it is, uh, it is amazing. Now the NFT thing that, that came out recently is, you know, of course it's a way to document and, um, create scarcity for a digital object. Right. And, um, do you want to, can you give a, a better definition than, than I just did? Um, well, sure. So, I mean, I can try. Um, so like, I like to start with uh, blockchain technology and Bitcoin because I think there's a little bit more, um, we, we might know what that is at least a little bit, right? Yeah, so yeah. Bitcoin is a currency and like any currency, if you give a dollar, it doesn't matter what dollar, it's, it's, it, it's a dollar and they're completely exchangeable. Now, Bitcoin exists on the blockchain. The blockchain, I understand it a little bit like and it, um, anybody who uses QuickBooks, yeah. they, they might like reconcile their accounts. The blockchain does this for each transaction. So every time a transaction happens, there is a permanent record that has been reconciled. So once it's been reconciled, it's written in stone. You can't change it. That is the way that it exists. This is uh, this was exciting to people. Um, I mean, I guess it's still exciting to people. But that this uh, Nick Land, a, a um, sort of crazy right wing person, but who also wrote a fairly important 
um, series of writing on Bitcoin in an art text that I can't remember the name of now, several years ago, 2013. He coined the term distributed trust. Basically, the idea is, you know, we're all in different places. And while the feds like sort of um, ensure that the bonds are like we trust that that in the feds that they will back the bonds and that they're not going to fail. We also have this idea of distributed trust. We trust in the blockchain and that the ledger and this process is unbreakable. Which leads us to NFTs. So what does this have to do with NFTs? Well, NFT stands for non-fungible token, which means that unlike regular currency, each one of these tokens is completely unique and it exists on the blockchain. So it's, it's um, using, um, mostly they, they tend to use Ethereum, um, but that means that all of the transactions are tracked but it is this uh, like um, it, it is it is a unique um, document. Essentially, it's a receipt. Nobody likes to call it that because it's profoundly unsexy, and you would never get sixty nine million dollars for um, a a suite of images. But that's what somebody purchased, and you in your digital wallet, you would also have the um, the collection of JPEGs. Yeah, exactly. And so essentially, I, I, I think, um, I think I neglected to, to, to say at the beginning that you also host a podcast called explain me. And I listened to your episode about NFTs, which was really good. And I think it was there that someone made the point that it's like, okay, well, everyone has seen an image of the Mona Lisa. Um, it's proliferated all around the internet but you don't own the Mona Lisa, right? So um, the person who owns the NFT is analogous to you know owning the Mona Lisa, right? So um, and you know distributing the image around the internet if you have the M the NFT only goes to uh, raise the value of of the the, the piece. So um, so I think it's it's going to be a big deal because you know. Um, a now it's on the map, right? Now now people are collecting them, so uh, that that just means that collectors and museums will start to acquire these things more readily. People will will be, I mean, Sotheby's and and Christie's take Bitcoin now. You can pay in Bitcoin, PayPal. You can pay with Bitcoin. Um, blockchain um, is going to be around now. It's it's uh, it's here. So uh, I think we all need to. Uh, become familiar with it. What, what's what's your thought on it, Amanda? Well, I mean, I agree with you that blockchain, blockchain technology is going to be pretty excellent for the work we do, at least as registrars um, and individuals who manage documentation and all those, all those things that, you know, essentially your paper files or your digital files are as important as the object itself. So that's only going to help secure that. Uh, I still struggle understanding Bitcoin and NFTs or nifties as John doesn't like to call them. <laughs> um, still, still struggling a little bit to figure all that out because a lot of times, especially with technology, I find a lot of it's like in this area cloud above my head and I don't get like the nuance of it. Um, and you know, a lot of us are still so used to that tangible, like this is a piece of paper and this is what it does. That's sometimes hard to make the leap. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, so that's where I stand with those. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the one thing that I did not expect was the amount of carbon footprint that NFTs have. And yeah. I had I had no idea because I would, you know, most in my mind, oh, you put something digital. It's like taking it's a great thing. It's good for the environment. Like you're getting right. literal physical things off or stop killing trees. Excellent. But no, apparently not the energy used to process and to do the exact thing like you were saying, Patty, to make like all of these very unique points happen on the blockchain. Like that's an energy suck. Yeah. And I had no clue. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to, to Patty's point, you know, the idea that it's de decentralized, it's distributed means that um, essentially a copy of whatever of that transaction log exists on nodes or, you know, computers distributed around the world. So the reason you can't hack it because it's not in one place you have to hack hundreds or thousands or possibly millions of the same thing right and so in order to process those transactions all in all of those nodes it's it uses a ton of energy and um one of the articles that that i'm gonna you know post to accompany this talk is is written by a, an artist that does uh, digital work and uh who's very much anti nft and for this very reason just because you literally cannot reconcile it um there's you know there's no amount of carbon offsets that you can buy even if you believe a carbon offset actually works there's no amount that you can buy that uh, will offset the amount of energy that it uses in order to make it work um so it's 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 a difficult one to reconcile yeah well, and the other thing, too, I worry about that is, you know, not only are we trying to move, you know, arguably the entire world's trying to be a little bit more environmentally friendly because we'd like to be around a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, and a lot of practices in the past have really, really kind of ruined that for us. But also because of all the energy, it I just I start to worry that like this cycle where it's like free the man, give the man access to everything. Just kidding. It costs a lot of money and we're going to bring it back to the really wealthy people that only they can do it. It's like that's what I'm worried about, like this democratization or whatever the word is of, of this practice may actually all of a sudden come back into the hands of the few. I think anytime you hear the word democratization and tech, you should like run away. It tends to be like, um, is it an oxymoron? I don't know. <laughs> Well, it's like web tech, tech company propaganda almost, you know, not to like overstate the issue, but like that is something that you see a lot. I see a lot in tech um, press releases and um, things that no human should have to read um, that are like just puffed up claims. Um, but I think like... This would be one area where I do, I don't know what the solution is to um, the carbon footprint that the, that this makes because it's enormous and I, I don't know how you reduce it. I do think that this would be one area where I feel like it would be very useful um, for like for not just the leaders of, of um, industry to kind of own everything that that this stuff works upon. So what I'm talking about here are the platforms that manage um, the technology, which 
tends to be, if you want to deal with it yourself, like very cumbersome. So that is why there's a, like you can, if you're an artist, you can sell your stuff on super rare. There's like a, it's a website that, that hosts things, hosts digital art, um, NFTs. There's a, there's also, um, a website called Nifty, um, confusingly enough, but it's spelled N-I-F-T-Y. And Nifty Gateway as well. And yeah, yeah no, there's a there's a few, yeah. Yeah, so like all of these things, um, like they have their own contracts. Um, and a lot of times I think what ends up happening is artists just use the default, you know? And this, this was sort of interesting because so, um, Kevin McCoy, who is, who um, with Anil Dash, the technology, so Kevin McCoy is an artist, Anil Dash was the technologist. At the Rhizome 7 on 7 conference in 2013, I think, they came up with a concept called Monograph, which was basically um, bringing together Bitcoin and um, artists and to um, create like the world's first um like NFT platform, right? So um, it didn't last very long. Um, Rhizome actually completed the project for um, the 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 two the duo who conceived this. But one of the problems um, that Kevin said that um, he had, and he told us this in an Explain Me podcast um, on Bitcoin um, a couple years ago was that um, artists only use the default um, for the pricing. And so, and this is something that I noticed in some of the, um, some of the materials that we're seeing now that people use the default contracts that these companies use and they don't alter them at all, right? And this is where people get into trouble, but it's also where there's a lot of opportunity, right? So if we have people in the arts um, who are working to ensure artists' real resale rights, who are working to build smart contracts that might also, like, pay, um, you know, gallery staff, like staff members, or Sarah Ludi, who's an artist who works, um, showed at Bitform, did a, a contract like that with one of her nifties. These are ways that we can start to try and balance the scales a little bit, but we have to be in control. And I think the problem um, is that, you know, all, you know, as arts workers, we don't have unlimited time, you know? And this has always, this I think is the, is the biggest hurdle towards, um, you know, achieving um, a more, more equitable workplace, more equitable, systems is that we don't have unlimited time to spend on these things and that is what we really need to um build and and promote them this is so good i'm um i i want to make sure that we're we're almost at uh at the hour mark here and i want to go to the chat one more time to see if there's any uh, questions or comments in there robin what what do you have for me there is. Um, it says, is there a museum that is collecting or likely to collect NFTs? And is there a museum starting to implement blockchain for registrars? 
This is something I do not know very much about. Um, John, do you know? I, I mean, look, I don't know about museums collecting, um, but I mean, obviously there are galleries selling uh, the stuff. I mean, in terms of the blockchain for registrars, what I do know about is uh, there are companies, there are several companies out there that are uh, using blockchain to verify and uh, what's the word? Um, create, you know, and document it on, on using blockchain technology. Um, title and provenance so uh in 2018 christie's did a sale with a company called artery and they sold like 300 million dollars worth of uh stuff and what it was is that artery it was a it was from a private collection and artery did the research to verify the the provenance history and uh, as well as the the title of each work and so once you register that on the blockchain as we discussed before that is immutable right you you can't you can't change it so what that does is that it gives there's an inherent value to the work because you know that i don't know what the artist was say say it's a picasso right well you know that that's a picasso and that that provenance is solid right so that gives it uh, a more stable value um now and i know that there are companies like codex uh, protocol and verisart that are doing that for artists that are contemporary so imagine you know you buy that piece fresh from the gallery and the gallery or the artist himself has documented it with one of these companies and so it's on the blockchain so you start at the beginning of the the piece's history um and you document it on the on the blockchain i mean i i like to think of like the uh salvatore mundi da vinci work if if we knew the provenance of that work i mean that'd be a billion dollar work right i mean it, as it was a contentious history and provenance and 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 dubious uh uh, attribution it's still sold for you know 450 million dollars so if we had blockchain for that just saying um so that's what i know about blockchain for registrars but it's not it's not complete um and i i do also know that they're using it for commercial shipping and which means that it'll probably trickle down to art shipping as well in the form of uh, smart contracts so um i'll let you guys look that one up uh <laughs> so uh and if anybody really wants it i i can uh, i can send you links but i think that's a really interesting thing because what a smart contract does is like you just trigger the button and it just executes a contract so when you're doing international shipping when it's going from one port to the next to the next to the next you don't have to refile paperwork it's just automatically uh transacting and um and you can document all of that so you know exactly where that piece has been because you have a a register of it so i know that much that's that's about where my knowledge ends so um but yeah i mean look i mean if if christie's is selling uh nfts a museum is gonna be uh coming soon right you know i mean um, yeah it's it, just a matter of time before someone exactly. donates their nft to an institution yeah exactly because that's mostly that's usually how museums get it it would be very rare for the museum to purchase something like that especially given yeah. its current market value right exactly exactly well i mean uh i think most most people are sort of uh put off by the idea of what those uh nft images are actually representing i mean the there's a interesting article about the people one that uh you know the five thousand days that sold for 69 million dollars i mean there's a lot of not so savory images in there so um you know maybe that has to change before museums start to collect it but um, they might get lent one before they actually have one they have to deal with in their collection yeah exactly 
but there's major artists that are using this. Ai Weiwei, you know, is like, you know, the biggest artist of the time. And, you know, he's been dealing with uh, blockchain stuff. So, you know, NFTs aren't new. They're just new to the mainstream. So um, with that, uh, unless there's any other questions or comments, I think we should start to uh, wrap things up. Um, any last thoughts? I mean, we, there's a lot, a lot of, a lot of stuff out there that we could, uh, be talking about right now. So, um, well, uh, anything last in the chat, Robin? Nope. It's been pretty quiet today. Okay. But no worries. A few comments that did come through though, everyone. Appreciate it. Uh, I guess I should, uh, say more racy things next time. Um, <laughs> so, uh, with that, um, Patty, uh, give us a, Tell us what you're up to and uh, tell us how uh, people can find out uh, about what you're doing or, and what, what you're writing. Right. So um, I have a review of the cause show at uh, the Brooklyn Museum coming out in the uh, art newspaper any day now. It's probably, I mean, for anybody who receives the print version, it's, um, it's already printed, but it goes online um, sometime this week. So keep an eye out for that. Um, for anybody who works closely with artists, um, uh, Workshop, the company I run, offers high-level professional training to artists um, in the field of communication, um, specifically digital communication, um, and uh, pricing, and uh, pretty much all ends of that. And, uh, of course, I do run the Explain Me podcast with the artist William Pohida, um, and we... Um, run that podcast maybe once every month and a half, two months. So we're Great. due and, for a new one. <laughs> gotcha. Um, and, uh, and and any uh, website that uh, people should look out for? Is there a personal one or the workshop website? Workshop.art. So um, just so everybody knows how that's spelled, it's a little tricky. It's VV. Um, so the V's. Um, form a uh, dot art um, and um, the Explain Me podcast can be found on anywhere you get your podcasts um, and everything else can be found on my personal website which is pattyjohnson.com fantastic thank you so much and thank you so much for your time today and your insightful comments on on all things that are going on in the world i mean this is uh, certainly an interesting time and i think it's going to be precedent setting so um you know it's interesting to uh take stock where we are and see uh see how wrong we are when things actually shake out so um with that, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, again, thank you, Patty, for, for joining us. Remember to um, hit that subscribe button on uh, the YouTube channel so that you can uh, and get those notifications so that you can uh, get notified anytime we have a new video or a new live stream going up. As usual, uh, the podcast version of this will go out uh, this coming Friday, Friday after. And um, in May, we have something extra special lined up uh we're just working out the details so i'm not going to announce it yet but it's going to be mayday oriented and hopefully uh interactive as they say and uh so you don't want to miss that and uh so that's the first tuesday in may what is do you know right off what day that is may the 4th may the 4th okay be with you at 1 p.m eastern (laughs) (laughs) yeah we will 
there will be. Is that be... a thing? May the fourth be with, with oh, you? Oh, yeah. Fourth. Come on, man. Somebody oh, is oh, Do we have to come in costume? It's a cosplay oriented May Day, <laughs> FYI. Uh, anyway, so. Um, all right, so so stay tuned for for that. Uh, follow us on Instagram and uh, Twitter and the LinkedIn, and um, we look forward to seeing you in May. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Please take care.